My God, you think you need help? You're not the one sitting in this room in New Haven, Connecticut right now, wondering what the hell happened to your life. You're not the one working six shifts a week at Infinite Coffee and living in a dark room with wall-to-wall -wall carpet infected by someone's former cat. You're not the one who's afraid to contact anyone you knew before because you are guilty of such terrible things that on the one hand, no one who knows you are guilty will speak to you, and on the other, no one who doesn't know you are guilty will even believe you. You aren't the one that can't go to Canada. You aren't the one for whom the gates of San Francisco, and don't bother telling me that the city has no gates, I know, have closed. You aren't the one who can't sleep, so you sit down at the computer and decide that somehow, this is the time to begin the project you've been carrying around in your head for years. Namely, to write a commentary that will complete and bring up to date the book you wrote about your time in Thebes, and it's long past midnight, and you're alone in your cat-haunted room, typing, and you think you're the one who needs help? My God. Hello and welcome, I'm Douglas Walls, and this is 42 Minutes, a weekly conversation with the interesting artists and thinkers of our day, a production of SyncBook Radio and distributed by thesyncbook.com. You can find our archives at 42minutes.com, and you can reach us by sending a message to mail at 42minutes.com. You can also follow our tweets at sync 42 and at SyncBook. It's Tuesday, April 10th, 2018, and because The Night Ocean, a riveting novel about secrets and scandals, psychiatry and pulp fiction inspired by the lives of H.P. Lovecraft and a circle, is due out in paperback tomorrow, we are speaking again with its author, Paul Lafarge. Lafarge is the author of four novels and a book of imaginary dreams. His stories and nonfiction have appeared in The New Yorker, The New Republic, The Paris Review, Harper's and elsewhere. He is the recipient of a Guggenheim Fellowship and many other prizes. He lives in upstate New York and we have spoken with him on two previous occasions for episode number 197 in 2015 and last year about this time for episode 269. More information can be found about him at his website paullafarge.com. It's wonderful to be welcoming him back. How are you doing today, Paul? I'm doing well, thank you. Great. Well, I, there's a lot of different things that I'm trying to wrangle into a conversation. We'll see if I can actually make it work. All right. I should say I was, uh, it's funny that you chose that passage from the Luminous Airplanes uh, hypertext to read because I was just in New Haven last night uh, huh? talking to some undergraduates about the, you know, the uh, possibilities of having a, a career in creative writing, whatever that means. Hmm. Okay, so... Another thing to wrangle. <laughs> I tend to kind of live my life thematically, and it seems like for a time now I've been experiencing something of an existential lack, I guess. There's, And it's kind of what happens is I end up looking to the stories that surround me to kind of find what I'm needing... And, and that mm -hmm. way, it feels like there's just these themes that come at me. And so, um, did you ever read the book Infinite Jest when it came out? I, I In fact, I read it when it came out, yeah. Have you spent any time with it after you initially read it in like 96 or 97? Um, I sat down to reread it maybe seven or eight years ago, and I got 
you know the the that book i don't know if it's really infamous for this but to me it's infamous for being almost impossible to get into and then you know completely impossible to put down once you're into it and uh so i remember you know slogging through the first 100 or 150 pages of that book and then like just staying up for you know however long it took to read the rest of the book and i think i got i got partway back into it uh, but I never reread the whole thing. Well, so the interesting thing, the, the convergence of things that's happening to me is last night I went to this talk by Werner Herzog, and he mm-hmm. his whole talk was about fake news and mm-hmm. and the ecstasy of truth and what truth is. And it was interesting because mm-hmm. it reminded me of our conversation we were speaking a year ago about your book about mm-hmm. truth as well. But... You know, one of the points that Werner came to is this idea that our our connectedness is actually making us more lonely, which is kind of what the book Infinite Jest arrives mm-hmm. at. But um, mm-hmm. and so it's interesting because about the same time I I started into Luminous Airplanes, which is kind of this interesting buildings roman of like the internet age itself. Could you talk a little bit about it? About Luminous Airplanes? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it, you know, that that project came out of sort of two different uh, impulses, and one was uh, an idea for a story, and the other one was an idea that had occurred to me at some point while I was living in San Francisco in the 90s, to uh, see if I could use digital media in some way to tell a you know a novel length story, and then I spent quite a long time developing the ideas separately and thinking about how they could how they could come together. And what I ended up with was uh, you know I ended up writing the manuscript of a novel and then figuring out that I could add to it with this uh, hypertext that contains the text of the novel and then also digresses from it and embellishes on it and comments on it and extends the stories that, uh, that are told in the novel in various different directions. And so that, you know, that's what I set out to do. And it, it does concern the internet era. The protagonist is a, uh, a guy in his thirties who's living in San Francisco doing uh, back-end programming for database websites or something. You know, he's got a kind of typical first internet boom tech job. And he's reckoning both with his family's past over the course of the story and with, uh, with the transformation that the internet has wrought on, uh, on the, the place where he lives, to which he's you know, fairly attached. And uh, and then also more generally on social interaction and on uh, ways of knowing and seeing and being in the world. Well, the structure of that work is the book can stand alone and it, it functions, but it also has kind of this open-endedness to it. Yeah. And so I wonder how much, I mean, since you wrote all of it, what, what <laughs> percentage does just the book, book you know the you know the oh uh the text of the novel is somewhat less than half of the text of the hypertext 
So there's somewhere around twice as much text online as there is in the novel. But then... Maybe more than twice as much, I think. When you conceived of the project, it was just coming up little bits at a time, and so you're creating a network of caves, as it were. And at this point, now everything is online, so one could read the novel in their explorations of these various immersive text. Yeah, the novel, so the the immersive text, the online version of this book is, uh, it to me it feels, you know, looking back now, this thing came out in 2011, so I'm looking back, you know, o- over a distance of about seven years, and it looks to me like an experiment, you know, not in the sense uh, that experimental fiction is sometimes experimental, which is just to say doing things differently or or uh, not taking everyday language for granted. But, you know, an experiment in the old sense of the word, something that I tried to see whether it would work or not, and that was free, you know, that had the potential both to work and really just not to work. And it feels like it sort of worked. Um, and... It never, you know, the story that it sets out to tell, that the immersive text sets out to tell, never got completed. So what you have is is part of the text of the novel and a great deal of uh, passages that branch off from that. And then there's the the suggestion of a continuation, but the uh, actual continuation never happened in part just because I was exhausted from getting the immersive text to that point. And in part, I think, because I'd, uh, I satisfied my own desire to see how this thing would work. And in part also, I think, because I basically satisfied everyone else's desire to see how it would work also. you know. And it turns out that it's interesting, but that that nobody was clamoring uh, for the thing to be twice as big as it is and to to contain uh, what would have been its full story. Hmm. I'll just say one more thing about it, because I think the, you know, I'm presenting Luminous Airplanes as a, you know, as its parent, as its creator. And so I, I, uh, I'm, you know, I'm a little disappointed with it, as one is always disappointed with one's creations, because you have an idea in your, you know, in your mind of what the the complete thing would be, and somehow, when you set out to make it real, you know, you're almost never actually fulfilling that that idea. You're you're coming as close as you can. I um, mean, at some point, you're just trying to get through the project, and you know and come out of it alive. But that said, I had an experience rather late in the process. You know, I'd written the book and I had finally uh, built the the interface to kind of set up the um, immersive text with the help of a, a very talented computer programmer named Jason Fager. And... Um, so I was finally able to take all of these sections of text that had been living on my hard drive just as separate little files and arrange them as I had imagined them to be arranged in the immersive text. 
Um, and this thing went, you know, there was a long period when this was just a, a kind of potential thing. And then it went very quickly from being a potential thing to being an actual thing. And at some point, while that was happening, I just I had a feeling of, I don't know how to describe it, just of tremendous rightness. It felt like this form was what the thing had wanted to be all along. And it was able to do what I had wanted it to do. And I, you know, I, I retain that feeling. I still feel I'm glad that it happened. And, uh, and I feel like there's, there is something right about it, even if it can be a maddening uh, piece of text to engage with. Every now and again, I wonder if in the future that... Well, because there was this whole explosion of blogs for a moment, too, and blogs definitely have that really interesting ability to link to other things, and it creates a different experience for everyone depending on you know, how they navigate through the thing. And I just wonder at some point when, when people become students of uh, you know, digital storytelling, that at some point if they become fans of this strange forms that were created in, in the early days of, you know, the digital media. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I, I think about that too. And, you know, some people are already students of digital media and, and even historians of digital media and of digital storytelling. And there's a, a whole set of, uh, you know, of, of communities and institutions that promote, uh, digital storytelling. I'm, the word storytelling's a little become a little infected by uh, its use in, in advertising and marketing. But you know, anyway, we we'll just let it ride. And they come up with some very interesting things. And uh, I have no idea what place luminous airplanes will occupy in that history. My uh, let's see. I have, a, I mean, I have uh, several thoughts about it, and I'm not sure how to fit them together. One is that reading habits will change, and modes of reading will change, and that as people read more and more on devices, the kinds of things they read will uh, will continue to change. I mean, that's that's already happened, and I think it'll go on happening. Whether that change will somehow circle back around to where I was when I was writing Luminous Airplanes is, a, is another question. I kind of doubt it. I think that Luminous Airplanes exists as a challenge to a lot of the, uh, the norms of uh, digital reading, which have to do with short sections of text and... Uh, sort of quickly evolving narratives. And Luminous Airplanes is the opposite. It's long, it's introspective. Um, things happen, but they don't necessarily happen very quickly. It's not plot-driven. Um, it's a book that invites you to read it, you know, it's, or it's a, uh, an immersive text that invites you to read it with a certain amount of, of patience and a certain also a certain amount of leisure. And it seems like the pressure's on digital uh, narrative are, are mostly, you know, pushing it in the other direction towards 
things that happen faster and are digested more quickly and um uh and also i guess things that are more collaborative and and more networky in that sense and i'm fine with luminous airplanes occupying that position it's a a, a story that's about the changes wrought by technology which ends up being i think quite ambivalent about those changes i see wonderful things coming out of them but you know even though i lived in san francisco in the 90s i never drank the Kool-Aid and just thought okay everything new is going to be better than everything old and in fact why should we even know what the old things are because we have the new things i i think it's important to know history it's important to be aware of of what's happened before and uh and it's also quite useful to read the present in terms of uh of the past and not just to to kind of blindly drive toward the new and and uh assume that it is uh valuable you know just uh, because it's new so i'm i'm sort of content to be a a curmudgeon in the world of digital narrative. Well, what about your reading habits? So, do you still read paper books and like how do you how do you get your news? Yeah. Yeah, I do. I think, you know, for book-length narrative, paper books are kind of the ideal vehicle. I also I, I play video games. You know, I wish I were better at them. I have actually kind of embarrassingly bad eye-hand coordination. So, any of the games that require you to be like physically adroit in any way. I'm just awful. I'm hopelessly bad at. But I enjoy playing the kind of slower moving games. And uh and then I'm I'm always thinking about the stories that they tell and how they tell them. And some of them are really beautiful and ingenious. And you know, it's there's no paper equivalent of that. It's really a thing that you have to do digitally and uh and if you don't experience it digitally I actually have no idea. You you couldn't really experience it at all. I mean, you could read about it, but you could never actually do the thing. Um, so my sense is that you know that in the future, successful digital narrative is going to be more like video games than it is like books. It's going to be something that needs to be digital, and not just a kind of uh, you know uh, translation of a, 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 an essentially. Uh, paper-based way of thinking uh, into a digital medium. I think I'm mostly happy with the idea of like curating curating my own headlines via the mm. pe- the people that I follow on Twitter, say. Mm-hmm. And I feel like I do take in a lot of news that way, but it it's not like super in depth. It's more like it's just headlines. But then mm-hmm. I still read magazines, and I like the kind of depth that you can get out of, you know, a, a long piece of um, mm-hmm. <clears throat> reportage in, in that uh, in that way. But for whatever reason, like the idea of sitting at my computer and reading, I, I you know, w- unless it's just well, flashing, it, it's more difficult for me to do something like that. But I I, I, I absolutely agree. You know, I'm end up. I mean, I'm I'm a 
I'm a kind of heavy internet user at this point, and as a research tool, it's just extraordinary. Yes. You know, I have the, I have the good luck to be uh, affiliated with a university which has a subscription to JSTOR and to PubMed and to, you know, these enormous databases of scholarly articles, and I can learn tremendously from those. And, you know, I, I'll often read them on the screen because I don't, have a, enough paper to print out everything that I want to engage with, but it's always a, a feeling of like it's a second-rate experience. You know, I'd much, I, I'd, I'd be more attentive, and I think I'd enjoy it more if I had some some magical being that would deliver to me, you know, hard copies of all the articles that I'm interested in reading. Um, and I'm just kind of making do because that being doesn't exist. Um, and that's you know, it's fine. It's it's so vastly better than not having access to those resources or having to constantly be strategizing about when I'm going to make my trip to the library and how I'm going to make time for it and lining all my ducks up so I can do all the work efficiently there, you know, and this just makes my life inordinately easier. But I think, I think if you, if you were to look forward and say, well, where is digital narrative going? It might be helpful to use a different verb. You know, we're talking about reading books, but what about if we talked about playing narratives? Mm. Yeah. Um, because then you're talking about doing something which is actually using, you know, the digital medium's capacities, right? What if you're, you know, there, were, there was a, a whole wave of text-based games that had the kind of brief mass popularity in the 80s and early 90s, and now... Uh, people still make them, and they're still wonderful, but they've become more of a, a kind of niche uh, product. Um, but if you play them, they have both the quality of, you know, the ones that, that really work, they have both the quality of being successful stories and of of needing your participation so that you are the agent who unfolds the story, and that's tremendously satisfying. You know, there's a certain amount of problem solving and puzzles and also just, you know, things coming to light as you, as you navigate through this world. And you could say you're reading one of those things. They're called interactive fictions. Um, you know, you're reading an interactive fiction, but really you're playing it. You're making choices, you know, constantly about what to do and where to go and what to look at and, and so on and so forth. And, uh, and that play is, you know, I mean that that'll keep you up at night. It's like if you're if you're really hooked by one of these interactive fictions, you'll just stay with it, you know, long past your bedtime. But I'm not sure I would describe what you're doing exactly as reading, even though your entire interaction with an interactive fiction is with text. They're all they're basically all image free. You know, so all you all you're doing is reading and typing words. But it feels like what you're doing and I think really what you are doing is playing. Hmm. Well, so the protagonist of Luminous Airplanes, uh, he at one point is a student of history, and he kind mm -hmm. of latch in a lot of you. It feels like a lot of your characters, they, they get kind of obsessed with an interesting <laughs> subject. Um, in, <laughs> in that case, it was the, the Millerites, but so the mm -hmm. interesting thing from my point of view, and so it, Charlie in The Night Ocean is like this too, where he just goes so deep into a subject, 
but there's a kind of meaningfulness in an endeavor like that, you know, really digging into a subject with a lot of meat and, and really, you know, part of the interesting thing to me is that zeitgeist functions in a similar way where the whole culture kind of gets swept away with, you know, different things at various times too. I'm wondering now that you're, you know, what have, what have you been working on and, you know, is there something interesting on the horizon we can expect? Oh, I'm working on a, a, a book project, but it's very uh, unformed at this point. And, you know, I've actually, I'm in a, a, a strange place with it where I've been reading and making notes and kind of amassing ideas for for uh, really more than a year now. And yet there are just enormous decisions that I haven't made, like what genre is this? What audience is it for? Who's telling the story? Uh, what century is it set in and where? And you would think there would be no way to do this much work on a book without deciding those things, but I seem to have found a way to do that. Um, the Millerites, oddly, are, I think, going to be part of it. <laughs> <laughs> well, who were, the, who were the Millerites, and why were they interesting? Oh, they're, they're a, a, they were a Christian sect that existed. They sort of got their, their start in, in Vermont and upstate New York in, I believe, the 18... 30s and um their idea which was hardly unique to them was that you could calculate the date of the apocalypse from uh some information in the book of daniel and uh the book of revelations and they did the calculation and concluded that the apocalypse was coming quite soon and again you know they're they're not unique in this there have been uh, there were there were people before them who believed the world was about to end, and there's certainly been lots of people uh, since then who have you know who have predicted the end of the world. But they were very uh, savvy with their technology, and they they published newspapers and they proselytized very effectively, and they ended up converting some large number of people. I don't think anyone has an accurate tally, or at least no one I no one I. I stumbled on had a definitive tally of how many converts they made, but but hundreds of thousands, if not millions, all across uh, the northeastern U.S. and the Midwest, and even in England. And as they moved forward, they felt more and more pressure to specify the actual date of the apocalypse. And finally, they came up with uh, October twenty second, eighteen forty four. And so all the Millerites who were really sincere in their belief, you know, gathered in their, their congregations on the night of October 21st into the 22nd, and they sang and danced, and some people say they, they wore white robes and gathered on hilltops, and some people say they didn't wear white robes or gather on hilltops. But they definitely, you know, they gave away their possessions, they, uh, they closed their businesses, they cleaned out their savings accounts. You know, they really weren't, planning uh they were they were planning for the apocalypse they weren't planning for anything else and uh and then of course you know the world didn't end and so they they all returned home somewhat uh chagrined and people made fun of them which i'm sure didn't help and also they were you know many of them were like broken out of work because they had 
given everything away, uh, and they, they'd made no preparation for the world continuing. And they reached various conclusions. Uh, some of them were disillusioned and said, yeah, that was just a, a bad idea. The world's not about to end, and they returned to their ordinary lives. Others said, well, you know, the world is about to end, but uh, we just, we did the math wrong, or we were, you know, we didn't look at all the available evidence, and they recalculated the date of the apocalypse, and they're still doing it. They became, the Millerites became the Seventh-day Adventists, and a branch of the Seventh-day Adventists, if I'm getting the the facts right, uh, went on to become the Jehovah's Witnesses, and they're still calculating the date of the apocalypse, and they they still think it's coming soon. Um, and then there was a, a third smaller group, which enchantingly to me uh, came to the conclusion that the prophecy had been right and the world had in fact ended on October 22nd, 1844, and that everything they were experiencing was a kind of afterlife that just happened to look a whole lot like the life they had left behind. Um, I don't know what happened to those people. I don't think they, uh, they managed to convince a lot of other people that they were right. Um, but, uh, but there they were, you know, and, uh, I love that story. I love the idea that you could be so committed to an idea or to a belief that you end up practically denying the existence of the world. You know, the belief becomes so powerful in your mind that there's no evidence that can contradict it. You've just completely given yourself over to uh, to this, this theory, to this idea that you've come up with. And I'm, I'm fascinated by people's ability to do that. It seems like a kind of uh, morbid form of the belief that we extend to stories generally that we're, we're willing to invest in the world of a fiction while we read it and to imagine that it's real, you know, and then we put the book down and we, we don't persist in that belief mostly. And the other thing that struck me, and I think I, I didn't know this going into reading about the Millerites, but it came out of, of reading about them and thinking about their work, is that they were active in a time when American society was changing rapidly. The population of the country was growing very quickly. Uh, there were a lot of technological developments happening in the 1830s and early 1840s, um, the railroad being probably the most notable of them. And I can't help wondering whether their belief that the world was about to end was really the expression of a wish, which is the world is becoming unrecognizable and I wish it would stop because mm. I, I'm, I'm frightened by it. Things are changing too quickly. They're getting out of hand. You know, there didn't used to be an Erie Canal, and now there's an Erie Canal, and now there's a railroad, and now there's the telegraph and the printing press. You know, the, the, I mean, I don't think the act, whatever. There are all of these new things and all these new faces, and I don't feel at home here. I don't like it. And I want to imagine that that somebody's going to come down from the sky in a burning chariot and just say, okay, basta. We, we've, we've concluded this experiment. Now, you know, sinners over here, saints over here, and, uh, and let's move on to the next thing. That there's an anxiety about change. And I think you feel it 
you know, a little bit in, in more recent millenarian uh, anxieties, you know, people who were terrified that of the Y2K bug, you know, you feel like that's, that's more an anxiety about technology's rapid transformation of, of social life than it is a, a reasoned belief that the world is going to end on January 1st because uh, because coders use the wrong number of bits to encode the date. You know, I think you 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 can see that that linkage in a lot of millenarian thinking, and then you know it becomes fascinating to me because it connects to the other thing that I was thinking about with luminous airplanes, which is how people react when the world changes around them. Yeah, uh, I heard it said of Infinite Jest that that. That world is a world that um, is is the world that you arrive at without a nine eleven. <laughs> you know. Uh, I mean, to me, it seems like there. Sure, there's something deeply nineties about Infinite Jest. Um, I don't think that the big themes of the novel are mistaken at all, and I don't think nine eleven really changed them much. I mean, we're still enthralled to images and we're enthralled to entertainment and uh and we do find ourselves more and we're enthralled to drugs right there's a lot of a lot of psychopharmaceuticals and in infinite jest and that's certainly uh remained true post 9-11 you know a lot of it feels like the either wallace was capturing something that was going to be true in the future, or more more often he had found something that was acutely true about the present in which he was writing and which remains true because the world doesn't change that fast. And the forces that he was describing are still the forces that shape our society and the pharmaceutical companies still want to make money and, you know, the streaming companies still want to sell, they want to sell subscriptions that they've got to make entertaining products and, you know, and so on and so forth. Yeah. I, I mean, so the interesting thing to me is that, you know, for all the bluster of wanting the world to end, we kind of did experience something of a major shift, like a paradigm shift. And that's kind of the... Did we? Well, yeah, I think so. I mean, so we're, your, your main character is in New York in, in the fall of uh -huh. 2001. Were you there he, then? No, I, I don't think even he is. Oh, no, he is there. You're right. Absolutely. <laughs> um, no, I was in San Francisco. I got the news, uh, you know, the way everyone else did on the, on the radio or the TV. Um, we, I don't know. It's, you know, I mean, I, I can see ways in which 9-11 accelerated changes in American society, and I can see ways in which things that were already present in American society latched on to 9-11 and, and were fueled by it. Um, to me, paradigm shift feels like a big word for that change. It, you know, there was something uh, apocalyptic about the moment itself. There was something traumatic about it. It felt like, oh, this is, you know, nothing will ever be the same. But Life-changing and world-changing events are just part of life and the world. I mean, you know, 
if you undergo a, a personal trauma, you have the feeling that your life will never be the same, and you're probably right. But those traumas happen all the time, and they don't mark the beginning of a new era generally. And I'm not even sure that the collective trauma of, of 9-11 marked the, the beginning of a really new era. It just kind of gave everyone the feeling that, that time had been cut in two and that there was a before and an after. Yeah. I mean, there was definitely a convergence of things. And one of the elements was this proliferation of technology that kind of happens right after 2001. I mean, it just seems like cell phones and it, it maybe it's my own mind trying to like create a narrative structure out of the past and, and saying, oh, here's the moment where, I mean, so the, this is the interesting thing to me, like the, the apocalypse, the Millerites were craving every now and again, we look at our society, like Facebook seems like it could be this great public utility except it's a business and what they're harvesting is our data to sell to someone else, you know, like in right. the, in the scheme of things, like to have a community network, what a beautiful thing. But when we become the, the, uh, not what we're, what they're selling, like that's, yeah, this is the twisted world we're in. Yeah. I mean, I, I can't stand Facebook to me. It's like going to the world's worst, cocktail party thrown in the food court of the world's worst mall. <laughs> and it's like, no, everybody is shouting. Nobody is listening. Uh, no one has anything interesting to say. And nine-tenths of it are complete BS. I mean, I just, I don't know. I, I, I feel a real aversion to that language space, even before you get to the privacy questions that it raises. It feels underdetermined and overvalorized as a social space. There aren't enough. I, I don't know. Weirdly, I might just, I'll just offer this as a hypothesis, that there aren't enough constraints to, uh, to limit the conversation, to make it interesting. And, um, and everybody attaches far too much importance to it. And it feels to me just like a, a, a an utter time sink or worse. But, you know, the technological change had been going on for a while. I think we want the markers because we we find it very hard to contemplate the continuity of time. I was just reading uh, a piece, oh, probably in the Times, about the invention of the cell phone and the first cellular call that was made, and it was awesome. It was this guy who invented the cell phone calling his chief rival who was trying to invent the cell phone but hadn't succeeded yet and saying, hey, guess where I'm calling from? And the guy's like, where? And he's like, my cell phone. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, it's an awesome story, but it was in the early 80s or in the late 70s. So you have a history, you know, the, the first cell phones were commercially available in the, you know, 82, 83, 84. Um, you've got a decades-long history before 2001, it's just that what happens is that gradually they proliferate, and then you know, and then at a certain point they start to proliferate very quickly. And that's following a logic of its own that doesn't have much to do with 9/11. I'm sure there were people who got cell phones after 9/11 because they were terrified. You know, what if something happens and I can't reach my loved ones? Of course, 
you know, the irony being that like the one thing you couldn't do after 9-11 was reach your loved ones on your stupid cell phone because all the networks were, were busy. But <laughs> but whatever. You know, you can I can imagine people doing that. But the, the main force that was driving people to adopt cell phones had nothing to do with 9-11 and it had been in existence for a while. And it, you know, it just kept growing in strength and, and, and pulling more and more people into itself. It's, you know, it's fun to think of ourselves. We're, we're narrative beings, right? And we want to think of ourselves as occupying an exciting narrative position in history. And for the most part, that means either being at the beginning of something or being at the end of something, because that's like when things happen. You know, we want to be the founders. We want to be the people who, who invented the new digital utopia. We want to be the, the pioneers of the uh, digital, you know, the first generation of digital natives. Or we want to be at the end of time, we want to be the last generation to live on the surface of the earth before the thing that's going to drive us all into caves or to Mars or just wipe us all out. We want to imagine that we occupy one of these significant spots, but the truth is we really don't. You know, we we go through periods of of faster and slower change, uh, but but we're all kind of in the middle. Things are going to, you know, things were going on for a long time before us. And some of them were quite, quite exciting. And some of them were quite similar to things that are happening now. And they're going to go on for a long time after us. You know, I mean, hopefully, unless we manage to make the planet truly uninhabitable, at which point I guess you could say that we would have fulfilled our, our desire for narrative satisfaction. But, but at what a price. Well, that was 42 Minutes. Thank you so much for sharing it with us again. Thank you. You bet. You've been listening to Paul Lafarge on 42 Minutes. Be sure to check out his website at paullafarge.com. For more information about the Sync Book, our guests, to check out past shows or to subscribe to the podcast via iTunes, please be sure and visit our website at thesyncbook.com. If you like this podcast, check out others. As currently all the Sync Book radio archives are free. We also feature a great search engine to help you find what you need. All this and more can be found at thesyncbook.com. Thanks so much. And you are standing at the entrance of a dark and gloomy cave. www.luminousairplanes.com The golden